0: Welcome everyone to Northview. We're so excited to have you join us for our weekend services online. I don't know if you remember, but almost four months ago, I hosted our very first online service, much like this one. At that point, I don't know, I was thinking that within a couple of weeks, this COVID thing is gonna be over. Well, I, I was very wrong on that and COVID is still around and we're still restricted in things we can do. But we do wanna start gathering together as a body live here at Downs Road and at our Mission Campus. So this last weekend, we gathered together some friends and family and community group leaders for a trial run to kinda work out the kinks of what a live service would look like. We worked with our city officials, we worked with the provincial government to make sure we have all the safety and health protocols in place that we need. One of the major things that we had to work around was we could only allow 50 people per venue. What this means is, if you want to come be part of a live service, you need to register online at norfu.org On Monday at 7pm, registration goes live for the following weekend. Make sure you sign up quickly because this weekend filled up in just over an hour. But we're so excited for the opportunity to gather again live in a smaller setting, but it's so good to have God's people together. And if you have kids, I know you're going to want to watch our children's service together with them. You know, if you watch as a family, you'll have some great opportunity for some good discussion after. So let's join Andrew and Amanda now as they lead us in some songs of worship to our God. 1 Peter
1: two nine says that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that we would declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Look, we want to sing a song about the gospel truth of how Jesus has called us out of darkness into the light. we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ who has saved us and raised us from the dead into new life. Amen.
2: to her.
0: series in the book of Esther with Pastor Mark. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open it to Esther chapter 8.
3: Well, it's great to be together again. And as you've heard several of the other guys say, it's a strange experience for a preacher to be sitting in a studio looking into a camera and wondering, is there anybody on the other end of this thing? Uh, but we are really grateful for the technology, and actually we do know that there are people watching. Uh, we've interacted with, of course, people here in Abbotsford, but uh, from different parts of the country, it's been cool. Um, folks up in Clearwater, uh, folks in Williams Lake, uh, Fort McMurray. Uh, we know there are some churches that are joining us, Real Life Community Church in Surrey, Wine Press Chapel up in Penticton. Of course, my mother's watching down in Oregon, which is very important. Uh, so it's cool that we have this, uh, this ability to connect in this way. And of course, this week, we have begun joining in groups of 50 at our Downs Rhone campus. And particularly for those of you who aren't connected into a community group or haven't been part of one of the watch parties in a home somewhere, you might be thinking, I would love to get together again in a you know, much different than what we're used to in Northview services. But groups of 50... Uh, live worship and uh, a preaching of the message from God's Word. And so if you're interested in that, you can get online and you can sign up for next weekend as we begin to do this regularly over the course of the summer. Uh, But we are nearing the end of our study of Esther. We're in chapter 8 and so I encourage you to have your Bibles open. And we have noted many times throughout this study that Esther is a unique book of Scripture in that God is not actually named His Name is not mentioned in this book, and yet his fingerprints and the overarching purposes of God are everywhere throughout this book. We titled the series Hidden God, hidden from sight, but certainly not hidden in His presence and His purpose and His sovereign grace over the lives of His people. Uh, Nigerian gospel singer Sanak Joseph wrote, the song Waymaker, which has been in the top 20 gospel songs these last couple years. And her lyrics would actually be a good backdrop to this study of Esther. The song Waymaker, it starts, you are here moving in our midst. We worship you. We worship you. The chorus says, you're the waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. And they're beautiful words. They're comforting truths, and yet it's almost as though she anticipates the yes-but questions. And the bridge of the song pushes us even deeper into faith when it says this, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. You never stop working. You see, at some points along our journey of life, I think Every one of us encounters those times where we see the miraculous intervention of God. Of course, in biblical history, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, Jesus' working of miracles and healing the lame and the blind, our own personal stories of where we can attest to how God stepped in in powerful ways. But many other times, and honestly, maybe the majority of times in our lives, We don't see it as clearly, the manifest presence of God's working. There are times where we ask, God, where are you? How is what is happening to me right now going to end up for your glory? I don't understand your ways. I don't understand your providence. Have you forgotten me? Are you still there? And at times like those, we lean into the promises of God that even though we don't see he's working, we know he is still working. And we seek to lift the plane up to the 30,000 foot view to get this bigger picture of the story of what God is on about. You may have heard the illustration before of uh, watching a weaver at the loom. A master weaver who is pulling threads through that loom to create a beautiful tapestry. And that you have to wait a long time to see the full pattern of these colors as they meld together in the beautiful artistry. Particularly if you're standing on the backside of that tapestry and just seeing the tattered remnants of threads here and there in various colors. And the patterns make no sense until you walk to the other side and you see what that master artisan is creating. And today we start to get a glimpse of what the weaver sees on the other side of the loom. So we're going to walk through the text, as is our habit. We'll read through chapter 8, and I want to pay special attention to three particular themes. We want to look at Esther's burden. We want to look at Mordecai's wisdom. And finally, we want to look at God's greater purpose. So follow along with me. Chapter 8, that same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said. And if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And what I want to focus on for just a few moments is the passion that we see in Esther. Remember who she was. Remember that she was a young Jewish girl. Her parents would have been captives. They had died. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai. She was one of perhaps dozens of young women who were randomly selected to be part of a parade of women brought before the king as he sought a new wife. How much did he actually know about her? How much did he actually care? Was she just another pretty face in a long line of one-night stands? And we could actually be quite hard on Xerxes at this point in time. Hers was, in some ways, a rags-to-riches story, commoner to the palace, but not because of love, but based strictly on the agenda of the king, the desires of the king, the pleasure of the king. His opinion was all that mattered. And even after she's chosen queen, Does the king really know her? Did he care about her? He obviously had not taken time to ask her about her family, her heritage, her background, her people. He didn't know until she had to reveal it that she was a Jew. We've seen her increasing in her boldness and her courage. The classic line of resolve, of course, in chapter 4, if I perish, I perish. And here in chapter 8, we see again her strength and her boldness. But beyond that, what I want to look at is the burden that she carried for her people. Her passion, her pleading, her intercession for those who had no voice. Now, we might want to believe that Esther and Mordecai could have been saved from Haman's edict. Even if the Jews in all of the other parts of the kingdom were to suffer, certainly the queen would have been spared. No one would touch the king's wife, would they? And Mordecai might receive diplomatic immunity because he was now second in command. And so it's possible that Esther and Mordecai might have hidden behind their positions and left Haman's edict unaddressed, hoping for the best, that the king might find a loophole to protect them. But of course, that's not what we see. Instead, we see Esther's passion for her people. She falls at his feet, weeping and pleading. If it pleases the king, if you see me with favor, if you think it's right, if you're pleased with me, let a new edict be written. How can I bear it, the destruction of my people? Esther is deeply moved, and her passion propels her into action. You see, it is one thing to be deeply moved for a cause an issue an injustice, and it is another thing to allow that passion to drive you to actually take some tangible action. In this case, Esther had to ask, would she use her position of influence with the king to speak on behalf of the voiceless? So many directions that we could head with this right now, using Esther as an example to look at. Obviously, there are incredibly relevant questions for us in the time and place that we are in today. With all of the social unrest, the calls for justice, the chaos that we see happening across North America, I think every one of us has had to look at the person in the mirror and ask some deep questions. What about my life? What about my story? What about my background? Have there been times and places in my life where I have been guilty, where I have intentionally or unintentionally been the oppressor? Pastor Ezra did such a great job a few weeks ago addressing the issue of racism, prejudice, injustice, and I'm not going to take time to re-preach that message, obviously. But beyond that passion for justice for all peoples, What about the far more important question, the far more critical question of the eternal destiny of all peoples, of the eternal destiny of those who have never heard the name of Jesus, of the eternal destiny of those who are in communities right now all around the world where there is no voice of the gospel? Are we moved with a passion and a burden and a prayer for people who are far from God? There are so many biblical examples that we could look to. Uh, The spiritual urgency, Jesus' life, of course. Uh, In Luke 19, He is coming into Jerusalem, and we're told as He comes over the hills, He stops, He looks at the city, and He breaks into tears as He weeps over Jerusalem and says, oh, if you would only know on this day the One who could bring you peace. Matthew 9, a very similar story. He sees crowds, great crowds of people, and He sees them as sheep without a shepherd, And he is moved. Literally, the text carries the thought that he has like a punch in the gut. The bowels of compassion, we are told. And then he says, pray that the Lord would send laborers out into these harvest fields, among these sheep that don't have a shepherd. There's a powerful illustration in Paul's writing to the Roman church in Romans 9. He says, I myself would be accursed if it would bring about the salvation of my people. I'm paraphrasing it, but as you look at that text, Paul effectively says, I would be willing personally to go to hell if it meant that my people would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I would be willing to be cursed for the greater salvation of the Jewish nation. We have to ask ourselves, how great is my passion for people far from God? If we believe what we say we believe that every person on the planet is deeply loved by God the Father. If we believe that the Bible is true in its exclusive claims that there is salvation in no other name except the name of Jesus Christ, that's Acts verse 4, chapter 4 verse 12. If we believe Jesus own words, I am the way, the truth and the life, No one comes to the Father except through me. If we believe these truths, then we have to be moved with passion to prayer and to intercession on behalf of a lost world. You see, Esther interceded before the king for those who were going to perish under Haman's edict. And how much more we should intercede for those who will perish for eternity. I was thinking about it this week. If everyone prayed for the lost like I pray for the lost, how much would be accomplished in the heavenly kingdom? I'll tell you, it was very humbling. It's humbling to ask God, oh, would you give me your heart? Would you break my heart for the nation's? Would you, Lord, give me this grace of a burning heart for lost people? I don't pray as I should pray, Lord. I know it. I confess it. Oh, God, give me your heart of prayer, a willing heart, a compassionate heart. So Esther's passion for her people moved her into action. Secondly, we want to see Mordecai's wisdom, Uh, chapter 8, verse 7 to 14. It's a longer section. I'm not going to read all of it. The first few verses, basically, Xerxes gives authority to Esther and Mordecai and says, you have my signet ring. But if we drop down to verse 10 and start reading, Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. Pony Express is headed out across the nation. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar." A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the peoples of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. I want to focus on the wisdom of Mordecai. You see, to understand what's happening, we need a little bit of knowledge of a unique law of the Medes and the Persian empires. And it was basically this, that the king gave executive orders, and if and when the king gave an executive order, it could never be revoked. If an edict was written and signed with wax the seal signet ring of the king, even the king himself could not undo what had been written. You see, our day is so different because laws change. They can be rewritten. They can be discarded. As cultures change and thoughts change and as the systems of justice change, a new government takes power, and very often some of the very first orders they give are orders to undo decisions of the previous regime. But in the Medo-Persian world, what the king decreed became law, and that law could not be revoked, even by the king himself. The book of Daniel gives us a really good example. Uh, Many of you are familiar with Daniel's story, but if you're not, Daniel lived a few years before Esther. He was another captive from Israel. He was Jewish by heritage, but he rose to a position of power in the king's court as well. He was a godly man. And other leaders who were around him were jealous of him and the influence that he had, and so they began to look for cracks in his life. They wanted to find some dirt on Daniel's life to discredit him, and they found nothing that they could discredit him before the king, except perhaps in his religious practices. They took note that as a God-fearing Jew that he prayed three times a day, and then they hatched this scheme, much like Haman hatched with Xerxes, and went to the king, King Darius, and said, O king, wouldn't it be a great idea if in your kingdom for the next 30 days no one would pray to any other god or make petition of any other leader except you, O great and mighty king? And Darius thought that sounded like a great idea. Write it down. Make it a law. Make it an edict. What he didn't know was that it was a plan hatched to catch Daniel in his prayers. The decree is made, Daniel goes to his room in prayer. The leaders as whistleblowers now go to the king. King, didn't you make an edict saying no one should pray to any other god? But Daniel's praying to another god. He must be thrown into the lion's den. And as you read that text in Daniel 6, you'll see that the king is so upset. Daniel is one of his favorite court officials. There is a strong bond between them. He does not want to see Daniel suffer. But the law of the Medes and Persians is the law of the Medes and Persians. And even the king himself cannot undo that law. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, and the king is heartbroken. Now, he was indeed thrown into that den, and if you know the story, you will know that God protected him. The lions did not attack him, and the next day he was pulled out of that pit alive. But the point of that little rabbit trail was simply this. Even the king could not contradict himself. So we come back to Esther... Mordecai was obviously familiar with the protocol around the king's edicts, the laws of the Medes and Persians. He knew that the edict that Haman had written and signed with the king's signet stood. Even if the king had wanted to change it, the law did not allow the king to change it. And Mordecai could have walked away. He could have said, well, there's nothing we can do. These are How things go around here? This is the law of the land. The king can't undo a law that he has made. It won't be revoked. So let's hope for the very best. Let's hope that calmer minds prevail. Maybe you've heard the old saying, or maybe I'm just old. When God closes a door, look for an open window. In this case, The door was obviously closed. Haman's edict couldn't be revoked. But Mordecai, in his wisdom, saw an open window. While Haman's edict could not be revoked, a new edict could be written alongside the first. A new edict that would counteract the first, neutralize the first. And the Jews are given permission to defend themselves. So much more could be said if time allowed, but this new edict was received, obviously with great joy, with rejoicing. In fact, an annual party came to be inaugurated around this date, even right up to the present day, the Jewish festival of Purim. But for now, what I want to remind you of and what I want to point out is that God is working out His purposes for His people, and He will use every means. He will even use a pagan king to work his purposes. This greater story, the the history books in which this story falls, he sets up and takes down the rulers of the world like pawns in his hand. He had used Nebuchadnezzar to invade Israel and drag them 900 miles across the desert and plunk them down in Babylon. And then God said to him, well, actually, it was I who sent you there. He used the political jealousy and rivalry in Darius's court so that Daniel would be thrown into a lion's den so that years later we could have great flannel graph stories for our kids in Sunday school. He used Cyrus to decree the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, and here he uses Xerxes and Haman, not God-fearing men, and then he uses Mordecai to direct the streams of providence to prove to his people that he is still at work. While he may seem hidden, unseen, he is indeed the waymaker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. We've got to finish the chapter. Mordecai left the king's presence Wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen in the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness, joy, gladness, and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because of the the fear of the Jews. Had seized them. Now, this paragraph actually fits really well. It's the beginning of the next part of the story. It dovetails into chapter 9, and next week, Pastor Jesse is going to pick that story up. So, I'm not going to say too much about that particular section, but I want to draw attention to one little comment that is incredibly important verse 17. Many people of other nationalities became Jews. Many people of other nationalities became Jews. Now, scholars and commentators debate this text, and they differ in their opinions on what was really taking place here. Uh, The translations say, like this one, they became Jews, or they declared themselves to be Jews. Others say they professed to be Jews. And commentators say that that particular phrase could carry several meanings. It could range from, well, they pretended to be Jewish, or to literally they converted to Judaism. And some have said, well, no, it's more like they identified with the Jewish people. They took the Jewish people's side in this argument. They stood up for them and for their cause. They joined them in solidarity. We might point to examples in the Holocaust years of World War II, how families like the Ten Boom family took in Jewish people and hid them from the Nazi army, or how business leaders like Oskar Schindler protected 1,200 Jews in his factory during World War II. That these people identified with the Jews, that they took the side of the Jews. And maybe that's true, maybe that's all that was intended. But could it also mean exactly what the text says in black and white, that many people of other nationalities embraced the Jewish faith? You see, there is a fascinating look at the providence of God in sending His people to Babylon to begin with. Hundreds of years earlier, as they came out of Egypt, headed into the promised land, He told them in advance, once you are settled in this land, if the day comes you forget me, you rebel against me, you sin against me, you will be taken captive again by another foreign power. My judgment will come down upon you. And as you fast forward hundreds of years, you see that this is precisely what happens. They are taken captive by Babylon. But what if embedded in their ordeal... What if underneath their story, God was weaving a new color, a new thread, a new people group, a new ethnicity, a new nationality into the tapestry of history? That on the day when we stand before the throne of God, that there are Persians lifting up their voices in that great song of revelation, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Persians and Medes and Mesopotamians. You see, our hidden God had a hidden agenda. We can trace into the future from this story. It's fascinating. The very first worship team to stand around young Jesus, who were they? The wise men, the the kings, the magi, who arrived from an Eastern nation to worship the newborn king. Where did that knowledge come from? How did wise men from Persia know about a Jewish baby to be born in Israel? Fast forward another 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls and the church is born, we're told in Acts chapter 2 that there were God-fearing Jews from every nation under the sun, including, they are named, Parthians, Medes, and Mesopotamians. You see, Jews that had been spread around the world returned for the festival week of Passover. And you say, how do these Persians who came to Jerusalem know of the God of Yahweh? Well, you see, in God's sovereign plan, he used the deportation of his people as a missional outpost in a land that they would have never gone to voluntarily. There's so many instances like this, all through the scriptures. I'll name two or three of them. Ruth, who is a very famous woman in the Old Testament. In fact, she is one of Jesus's great, great grandmas. What's fascinating about her story, however, is that she was a foreigner. Ruth was not of Jewish descent. She was a Moabite. Her husband was a Jew. And her husband's family had immigrated. They had left Israel because of a famine and moved to a land that they would not have normally moved to, Moab, an enemy state, because there was food in Moab. They marry. Later, her husband dies. Her father-in-law dies. And her mother-in-law takes her back to Israel. And she just so happens to marry into Jesus' family tree. Another example, in Solomon's time, An Ethiopian queen named Sheba comes for a visit. She is inspired and impressed by the God of Solomon, by the grandeur of Solomon's kingdom, and by Solomon's wisdom. And the question that sort of lies out there is, did she convert to Judaism? Did she take Solomon's faith as her own? And of course, we don't know for certain. The texts don't tell us. But what we do know, if you fast forward in the scriptures, is that in Acts 8... There is a government official high up in office, a direct report to the then present queen, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is a God fearing Jew and finds himself in Jerusalem for worship. And on his way home, he just so happens to bump into Philip along the road as he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip jumps into his chariot and preaches the gospel of Jesus to him. How do these things happen? It's here that I want to press you to consider the long game of God's sovereign plan in the redemption of humankind. You see, a decision made by a family today might not bear fruit for the kingdom for four generations from now. And when the tapestry that is our lives, that is being woven over our lives and eternity is turned around and we see the beautiful display of God's plan, we'll go, oh, that's what you were doing at that point in time. And we'll celebrate. But you see, we are so often so myopic in our view of life. We can't seem to lift our eyes, particularly as Western Christians. We can't seem to lift our eyes beyond the short span of our 70 or 80 lives. And quite honestly, we can't hardly lift our eyes beyond this week or this month or this year. But God is in the long game. Interesting reference in Acts 17 He says that God even determines the exact times and places where we will live so that people will seek him. In other words, in eternity past, God knew your address. He knew that you literally would be living where you are living today. And whether you are there for two weeks or you are there for 40 years, God had a providential intention of putting you in that place. And in the here and now, we must look for God's long game. Even though we may not see it, we must trust that even when I don't see you working, Lord, I know you are working. I know that some of you today need to cling to God's good purposes over your life. And you may need to claim to His purposes that you don't even see the fulfillment of in your lifetime, but you know He is working. He never stops working. We can't end this passage without jumping forward to the New Testament, because as I mentioned at the start, the gospel is all over this text. Esther intercedes for her people, and she is a great example. She is an advocate. She is a mediator. But of course we know that we need a greater mediator and that Jesus himself came to be that one mediator between God and mankind. Hebrews 5 tells us that during His time on earth, that He continually offered up prayers and intercessions, that He cried out to His Father. And then Hebrews 7 tells us that now in His resurrected, glorified state, as He sits at the Father's right hand, that He is ever interceding for us. That's an amazing text, that Jesus Himself is standing before the Father or seated at His right side, talking to Him on our behalf, leaning into the Father, praying for us, interceding before the Father as our advocate, as our mediator. Mordecai writes a new edict that defeated the old. Jesus takes the verdict written against us, and he doesn't rip it up. He doesn't throw it away as though it doesn't matter and that it no longer stands. Instead, we're told in the New Testament, he takes that edict, that written code against us, carries it to the cross of Calvary, and nails it there and writes across it paid in full. Colossians 2 tells us that the law has condemned us, rightly so, the guiltic verdict. But then it says in chapter 2, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Now listen to this, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What an amazing picture. That there is one, there was one who had clean hands and a pure heart, who was able to ascend the hill of the Lord on our behalf. One who lived a perfect life at every moment in time. And he walks up the hill of Calvary carrying not his shame, but carrying my shame. Carrying not his sin, but carrying your and my sin. And he takes the guilty verdict that was written against us. He does not disagree with it. No argument, no defense. The verdict is accurate. The law stands. The debts must be paid. The law cannot be changed but I will write across it in blood red ink, paid in full. Oh my goodness, what a beautiful picture. And the question actually that each one of us has to come face to face with is simply this question. Will you allow somebody else to pay your debt? Will you accept the free gift that Jesus Christ has done for you and offered to you? You see, I think that part of the offense of the gospel, you may have heard that phrase, that the gospel is offensive. I think, frankly, one of the offenses of the gospel is simply this, that we must humble ourselves to say, I can't do anything to save myself. And for Western-minded, self-made men and women... That is a humbling statement to think I can't pray enough, give enough, serve enough, cry enough, grovel enough, repent enough. I can't merit my own salvation. But that there is one who obeyed on every occasion and he willingly steps into the flood of God's justice, absorbing the rightful wrath of God on my behalf and then declares salvation full and free. A new edict has been written over our lives and all we must do is say yes. I will lay my life down for you, Lord, as you laid your life down for me. Now pick up this life of mine and use it for your glory. The last half of Esther really is a great reversal. What looked like a devastating decree is reversed, and there is great rejoicing in their response. And I would say, friends, that the the rejoicing, the response of these people should be an example for us. That those who have rightly understood the gospel should be the most winsome, free, and generous, gracious people on the planet. For all that King Jesus has done on our behalf, we should be singing and dancing and feasting and celebrating as these people were. Yes, we know we live in the already and not yet. We know that the future consummation of the kingdom is yet to come, and in this life we still have trouble, but we live for the hope of that coming kingdom, and we stand in the joy of our salvation. Like the old hymn says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Let me pray with you. Oh, God. Would you somehow allow us to see this world through your eyes? Yes, to take the example of a woman like Esther who pled before the king on behalf of her people, whose passion moved her to take action. But even more than the example of Esther, Lord, the example of your life that you now plead before the throne of grace on our behalf. And God, that you would break our hearts with what breaks yours. Yes, Father, there is so much immediate application for the needs of our world around us today, needs for oppressed people that can't speak for themselves, needs where injustice is being done and we need to cry out in solidarity for justice. But Father, the eternal destiny of the souls of men and women, does it move us? God, I pray for the men and women who are listening to this. I don't know their circumstances. I know that some of them are facing serious trials right now. Challenges in their marriages, children in hospital businesses that are not doing well but father beyond those stories we also look at the macro story of eternity and we say oh god lift our eyes to the bigger picture of what you are on about in our world oh god would you give us the grace for these days and would you also give us the grace of a broken heart for people who are far from god move us oh god we ask this grace we ask this mercy for your good, for your glory, and for our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that message out of Esther. You know, another great way that we have to worship God together is through giving. I mean, God has so richly blessed us, and we want to give back a portion of what he's given us back to him. And the way we can do it is giving to our local churches. in Northview, I want to thank you for the way you have given through this very difficult time. We've had new people that have come on board to give, and it's been incredible to see God meet our needs through this very, very difficult time. If you're new to Northview, please feel under no obligation at all to give. There's a number of different ways that you can give to Northview. One is you can text to give, or you can go on northview.org, and they'll lead you clearly through there how to give. Also, you can write a check, and you can drop it off at the church, or you can mail it in to the Downs Road address. Now let's join Andrew and Amanda as they lead us in another song of worship. For joining us this weekend, I want to leave you with God's word out of Colossians 1. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all His glorious power so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, for He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you next weekend.